This is episode 182 of the To Birth and Beyond podcast. We're so excited to have you with us on this episode of To Birth and Beyond. I'm Jesse Mundell, mom, kinesiologist, and fitness coach to pregnant and current moms. And I'm Anita Lambert, mom, pelvic health, and orthopedic physiotherapist with a focus on women's health. On the show, we provide information and education on fitness, the pelvic floor, fertility, pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and women's health. We offer a brave space to have candid and vulnerable conversations on the struggles and joys of motherhood, including all aspects of our physical, mental, and emotional health. While you're listening in, please remember that the information on the show is not meant to diagnose or treat any medical conditions. Please speak with your medical provider for all things related to your healthcare. We're so excited to have you. Let's dive into today's show. So welcome back to another episode of the Two Birth and Beyond podcast. It's Anita here. And today I have a guest joining me, Sinead DeFore, who is going to be chatting all about pregnancy-related pelvic girdle pain. You'll also hear us uh, call it PGP. Um, And we'll cover common myths and what can help. Uh, It's one of the most common issues that my prenatal clients come in for in the clinic. And so I love sharing about it. And you'll hear today that Sinead has so much knowledge to share on this topic as well. Plus, if you're a health professional, you'll want to be sure to check out the course that she teaches. And I'll have her share about that later in the podcast. So thank you for being on, Sinead. Thank you for inviting me, Anita. You know, I always love talking about this topic. You and I could talk about it for days, probably. So no, thank you for the invite. Yeah. And so for those who don't know Sinead, she's an associate clinical professor in the Faculty of Health Science at McMaster University. And she teaches and conducts research in both the School of Medicine and Rehab Science. And she completed her master's in physiotherapy, her PhD in health and rehab science, and a postdoctoral fellowship. Her current research interests include conservative approaches to managing pelvic floor dysfunction, pregnancy-related pelvic girdle pain, and interprofessional collaborative practice models to enhance pelvic health. And so Sinead stays current clinically through her work as the Director of Pelvic Health Services at The World of My Baby. You may know it as The Womb, a family of perinatal care centers in Ontario, Canada. And in addition to managing her own busy caseload, she mentors novice pelvic health physios and is a clinical preceptor for family medicine residents and midwifery students. And her passion for optimizing perinatal care and health promotion for women and children stemmed from her own experience becoming a mother of twins. So, so much. And I know I want people who don't know of you to get a good background on you. And many may already be following you on Instagram that you recently joined, which I was excited to see because you have just so much great knowledge and information to share in a really digestible way. Thank you so much for, for that intro. So you maybe let me know, I mean, that was pretty good sort of context. What I will say about pregnancy related pelvic girdle pain specifically, um, why this continues to be a real interest of mine is actually that was one of the issues really as a pregnant mom of twins that was actually a problem I never really had. And so, you know, this is one of the pieces I think as I reflect on my own experience and that kind of exciting me about different areas of pelvic health, of course, diastasis rectus abdominis is another area I've done a lot of research in. That was an issue I had. Like I had horrifying diastasis. I had two terrible hernias, holes in my abdominal wall. I had to get it surgically repaired. So, I mean, that was an issue I had. 
when it comes to pregnancy related pelvic girdle pain, actually, that's an issue I never had. So it did lead me to always kind of question the thinking around, well, it has to be because there's more weight in the body. It has to be that there's more relaxing. It has to be, well, no one would have had more of that going on than me. And I didn't have the problem at all. Right. And as we find, of course, the data doesn't support those things. And so we'll, we'll kind of get into it. So yeah, lots of my own experience kind of infused into the journey for sure, from a curiosity perspective. I mean, that is so needed, especially, you know, we see all the time and still, I mean, as physios, we both were taught, again, those traditional um, reasoning for pelvic girdle pain as well. Mm -hmm. And then the more we know, um, mm -hmm. we've just learned that some of those are now a bit out of date and we know mm -hmm. kind of more why this is actually happening. And I know whenever I put it out there on social media or with clients, they kind of wonder, like, am I the only one like going through this? But when we actually look at the stats, pelvic girdle pain, it's as high as 46 to 58%. So really mm -hmm. like one in two pregnant people mm -hmm. are experiencing this. So why don't we jump in first? Cause you'll hear us talk about pelvic girdle pain a lot. And it's still, for us, it's not a new term, but for a lot of people it is because most people are diagnosed with, with a very like anatomical specific type pain. Mm -hmm. So Sinead, can you share really what is under that umbrella term of pelvic girdle pain? Yes, absolutely. So you're quite right. Um, the pelvic girdle kind of mostly is characterized by the two sacroiliac joints at the back of the pelvis, and then the symphysis pubis at the front. And then, of course, sort of our hip joints, our ball and socket joints kind of come into the sides of our pelvis, right? So we kind of think of that girdle. And then our sacrum, of course, that triangular bone that's like wedged in the middle in each of our sacroiliac joints on each side. Then, of course, we have our lumbar spine coming off of that, right? So we have this really center sort of part of our body where everything's kind of like the center of everything of course our reproductive organs are housed in this area right and so you're quite right we've talked in terms of sacroiliac joint pain sacroiliac joint dysfunction pubis symphysis dysfunction pubic symphysis sort of separating and what we have kind of come to a consensus on is really it is one sort of incorrect and then two not necessarily clinically meaningful to be describing those joints in terms of dysfunction because we actually know there is nothing dysfunctional about them even when there's a pain experience there right so that's one but then two even sort of you know describing the the issue by the specific geography of where the pain is you know in the sacred liac joint so we've come to consensus to say look given that we have an, an enhanced understanding of what are the real things that contribute to the experience of pain in the geography of the pelvic region and what we understand it is, is more global factors it is much more helpful to just label any pain experience within that geography as pregnancy-related pelvic girdle pain, if you're pregnant. If you're pregnant and in the first year postpartum, pregnancy-related pelvic girdle pain. And we know that really the bulk of pelvic girdle pain is popping up in this context. We can also have pelvic girdle pain in men or women outside of this basket, and still the preferred term is a pain experience in that geography of the body, in the geography of that pelvis, that should be called pelvic girdle pain. That's really what's more correct. And it makes sense when we really do think, well, even if you have a pain experience more on one sacroiliac joint, if you're referring to it as that, 
almost by default, it can get you stuck in the trap of the peripheral anatomy, right? Just by the name of it. So by us actually even referring it to something as more global, it helps to really recognize and acknowledge all the global factors that modulate nociceptive processing in that part of the body, right? So it really is, I think, an important first step that we all shift our language because it kind of does imply a broadened understanding. No, I think that's so great. And I know when we go into some of the myths um, around this type of pain, we're going to be touching on that again, because with the research we have, how you mentioned, it's not, it's up until now, it's been very biomechanical and what is going on there. And we know with what the information we have now, we need to move beyond just the biomechanics and a lot of the biomechanics that have been talked about aren't necessarily valid anymore. So, and if you're listening in and you're wondering, like, do I have these symptoms? So Sinead did a great job explaining where you might feel this pain. Um, And then some of the different movements that you might feel it with could be turning in bed, could be when you're sleeping, putting on your socks, putting on your pants, walking, exercise, a lot of these, um, movements may elicit this type of pain but as you'll find as we talk about it it's we don't especially as physios we don't want you to stop moving because there's this whole cycle of once you stop moving it kind of elicits more of that isolation factor and that can actually contribute to your pain so we want to keep you moving and finding ways that you can actually do these movements or positions um, with less pain, which then also helps with the recovery and experiencing less pain. So why don't we jump in? One of the myths you already mentioned, Sinead, was relaxing is to blame because yeah. this is, I find, still everywhere. I still have clients coming in being told this. And once I start going through this with clients, they're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And it's one of those things how you mentioned you had multiple different other symptoms or issues going on um, within pregnancy and postpartum. And so you would have had varied relaxing levels, but you didn't experience this pain. So Mm -hmm. I'm like, everyone who's pregnant does have an experience with an increase in relaxing levels, but not everyone experiences this. So Mm -hmm. that's one of the things And relaxing is just also, I find the issue with it is we don't have control over our relaxing levels. So that perpetuates mm-hmm. that idea that we don't, we're, we can't change this pain. Mm-hmm. So can you dive a bit deeper into really what is the evidence around relaxing when it comes to PGP? Yeah, so you're right. This is an important one to knock out at the beginning. So it's not to say that relaxing or other hormones are irrelevant. And it's not to say that they don't impact musculoskeletal tissue. We know actually that they do, right? We know that. We know that different hormone levels does alter, you know, mechanics and tissue properties, but it seems to alter it in a different way in every single person. And so it tells us that it's more complex. It tells us that there's other factors that are also modulating the endocrine system, how much sleep you get, what, what you eat, how much social, like, so we can't just say that. And you're quite right. Every single woman has a spike in relaxin, which yes, by its name, is meant to actually soften the tissues and make them more responsive to be able to sort of grow and then kind of, you know, birth this baby. Absolutely. And and the name kind of links with that. But you're quite right. If relaxin truly was responsible for a pain experience or having softening in the tissues somehow 
created a pain experience or a threat in the body, then 100% of women would have that experience and they do not, right? So there was actually, so this has been kind of teased out a lot, but I think the most kind of convincing evidence is a systematic review that was published in uh, 2012, right? So of course, a systematic review, like this is your highest level of evidence. You are looking at all the trials and combining them all. And with confidence indicated, it just doesn't line up. We know it's sort of a thought process that makes sense to people. Well, surely if there's relaxing, relaxing things too much and things are moving too much, then that must be, be the pain. But, you know, we also know from all, all our, our spine and back pain data that we used to think too much movement in the spine and instability of the spine also led to a pain experience. And that has totally been proven not to be the case. So it's sort of like the same evolution of data. So we can feel really, really confident with that notion. And then again, like looking at the data um, among women who actually have higher levels of relaxants. So women, for example, who are carrying multiple babies. So with a twin birth, it's on average that you have over threefold the relaxant levels, not twofold, threefold. And actually, we don't at all see in the literature at all that uh, predictive factor, risk factor, or otherwise for this condition is uh, a multiple birth. We also don't see, you know, a risk factor being sort of um, a, a baby that is like bigger for gestational size or any other kind of mechanical factors. We just don't have those. So I think we really can feel confident that yes, we thought this, we made some assumptions about this as we have done for back pain. And we know better now, we know differently now. It, it, it doesn't tease out. It isn't the thing we should be focused on. And you're quite right, Anita. It's a problem because it is a factor you can't change. If you truly think that this is an experience you're having because of hormone levels that are going to stay in your body until you birth your baby. And if you truly think this is an issue you're having because of heavier load and mechanical load in your body from a pregnancy that you're going to have more load as the pregnancy goes on. I mean, that's incredibly threatening. That's incredibly dis disempowering. And what do we see as risk factors for this issue? It's actually those things, having a negative prognostic thinking about this condition. So it really is important that people kind of understand this notion of relaxing, but they are also working to really, really debunk this so we can start empowering people, you know, in terms of all the things they do have control over for sure. Yeah. And I think that's so important um, to, to bring up is someone's level of hopefulness that it's going to get better is actually a significant predictor of Absolutely. whether someone is actually going to like I find um when and I'm sure you see this too Sinead when people come into your office who have already been told whether through Dr. Google or from mm -hmm. a care provider or another health professional like you're just gonna have to put up with this until you give birth there's actually nothing that can change we already know where we need to start. We need to start working on those beliefs. And within that session, have those test and retest um, mm -hmm. kind of moments so that yes. they can feel in their body right away. Oh, this pain, this pain can change. And it just changed within mm -hmm. a minute. It's not that I got 
you know, stronger, if some people feel like strength is the issue or anything, right? It's not that mm -hmm. something significantly changed in one minute, but if we kind of did something differently or started changing beliefs or started reducing that fear or increasing support, all those things can change that pain experience. So mm -hmm. I love, I love that you brought that up. And so hopefully everyone hearing that is now aware of relaxing isn't necessarily to blame for, mm -hmm. for this type of pain. Um, and one other thing you brought up too, which is so common is people are told their pelvis is unstable. My SI is out of place. My pubic symphysis is out of alignment. Um, and again, that, that goes into that idea of, I can't change this. Like we don't mm -hmm. have control over these, these mm -hmm. things. But again, as we dive into the research, our pelvis is very stable, whether mm -hmm. we're pregnant or not, this is a very stable part of our body. Um, and so let's dive into, yeah, some of the, the evidence mm -hmm. and the research behind that Sinead. Yeah. So you're quite right. And, um, it's not to say that because, you know, women can very much have like a perception that one side feels different than the other, you know, and, you know, if they go to a very well-meaning care provider who's indicating, you know, one side is, is, is stuck and the other side has an upslip and the other side now is too loose and these kinds of things, it can really perpetuate. And it's not to say that with all the kind of contractile tissue and even some of the connective tissue that our systems might not hold tension kind of more in one way than another way. That's not what we're saying. We see evidence of that on our treatment table. You know, our clients can tell us that, you know, they try to do a butterfly position and the one leg doesn't even go down. But actually we want to really be reassuring. Yes, the inert structures, right? The actual bony structure, that part's good. It is the soft tissue that modulates, but we have so many different ways we can modulate it right? So we can modulate it through not being scared to move. We can modulate it actually through, you know, getting better sleep. We can modulate it through. So it's, I think it's important for us to acknowledge, absolutely, we're not saying the tissues are totally irrelevant and we're not saying, but we're saying that the things that are modulating the tissues really kind of are coming more from central factors. And so, yes, we can do some things more in the periphery of the level of the tissues to kind of modulate for sure. We know that is always one way into the system, but if we're kind of focusing there and if we're perpetuating beliefs about the actual integrity of the inert structure, that's, that's generally just not helpful, but certainly I think it is important to be sort of speaking in terms and validating what a person's feeling in terms of one side of their body feeling, you know, like their motor patterns are different than the other. But as you said, highlighting within the context of the visit in your session by switching up your beliefs or not anticipating the pain because you have them actually do the technique a bit different and you have them just imagining like they're light as a feather and it's not even going to hurt and they execute the same motion and they think, oh my gosh, that was a completely different experience. And it helps them to understand, yes, because there's so many different things that do change the motor behavior of your tissues. There's so many things. And yes, we do want to address, you know, motor behaviors that are just not helpful, right? Absolutely. You know, do we tend to have some evidence Um that, you know, when it seems like there's a degree of kind of like homeostasis sort of through the tissues, 
that that's people seem to do better. Yeah. I mean, certainly Cecile Ross's work kind of sort of fed into this, but there's also been other research done looking at this concept of sort of symmetry within the pelvis, but we need to make sure we're not taking that as like the bony joint, you know, aspect. And we're really thinking of tissues and tissue patterns and there's different ways you can modulate patterns but actually we see we can do it so much more effectively when we target the central factors right to do that so it is it's a matter of teasing out yes the tissues are relevant yes there is a little bit of this concept of you know um, maybe wanting to promote as much sort of symmetry or evenness or optimal patterning like whatever language you want to use but we want to stay away from language around upslips and this is restricted and I need this passive force outside of myself because if we're working on the level of tissues it means a lot of that we can be empowered by someone almost more in a coaching style to, to do it on our own but if we're dealing with the bony structure it means we're having to kind of go into someone's office and we are now like dependent on someone a force outside of us to correct something and so one we know that's not true but Two, we also know that, you know, really empowering people in this concept of self-efficacy is so critical for any manifestation of a low back pain experience, as well as pelvic girdle pain, right? So that's probably what I would say is my main pieces there. Mm -hmm. No, I love that. And it's so true of validating someone's experience because uh, like their pain experience, because I think sometimes that gets brushed over in terms of being like, okay, yes, and then moving on or just not acknowledging it. So that is, I totally love that you brought that up and then bringing in that idea of rather than necessarily the bony structures, I, I often will use the term tension because mm -hmm. I find tension, like muscle tension does not feel like a kind of threatening situation mm -hmm. to the body and how you talked about like really when it does come to some muscle tension, it and the pelvic floor, which we'll talk about, it's often a protective mechanism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so some people even find when they start experiencing pelvic girdle pain, they often find they tend to feel actually more tense over time. They're like, mm -hmm. I kind of am losing my flexibility, but I thought in pregnancy, I would be more flexible, mm -hmm. but it's more that their body is almost trying to protect, um, this area that they're experiencing pain and then also all the other uh, messages they're getting about the pain and it just creates more of a protection mechanism mm -hmm. and I love that you brought up just all of the and we'll kind of dive a bit deeper into it all the other factors so we talked about you know addressing some of the muscles um, or muscle tension but then also you talked about like stress and sleep and mindfulness mm -hmm. so all of those things let's dive a bit more into that because mm -hmm. I think people are surprised to hear that can actually change our pain experience. Yeah, okay. So, um, and I will just kind of um, preface that by saying, you know, at the end of the day, you know, going through how those different factors sort of modulate nociceptive processing, and I'll talk more about that in a sec. I mean, that's kind of one of the ways too, just at the outset, I'll sort of help to explain to people to say, look, people have this issue if they're having a pain experience in this part of their body, right, while they're pregnant or the first year after we call it this, but it really kind of only impacts one out of two. So half of women like don't have a problem. So we have to figure out well, what is going on in the other half, why they're having this experience. And I'm also very clear to say, look, 
Pregnancy-related pelvic girdle pain, we're not talking about those odd aches and pains, right? Like if I classified myself and said, did I experience pregnancy-related pelvic girdle pain in my pregnancy? I would say no, because I didn't have unrelenting pain that was kind of getting worse and worse, that it affected my sleep, that I couldn't do anything about it. It was causing me a lot of distress. I was wondering how am I going to take care of my babies after with this pain? No, but did I have days that I had aches and pains and booked a massage and got the heat pack on my thing and then it was better the next day? Of course. So every woman is going to have that, but that's not what we're talking about, right? So that is truly your nociceptive input that's short-lived, that you can deal with it, whatnot. That is not the experience that's getting fed by all the central factors that becomes a problem. So it's like the 50% of women that are literally coming in to see us and like, you know, maybe they got a little bit of help with this particular treatment, but if anything, like things are getting worse and they're getting more distressed. That's not the aches and pains. That's not primarily nociception, right? So that's when we really have to make sure, okay, we're in a situation where we have to really now think of all the things that alter nociceptive processing and make sure the client in front of us gets it, like that they understand. So what are some of the things that will actually dial up this, this kind of um, threat response in the body? Because that's essentially what it is. You have a pain experience. It's because there is a dial-up in your threat response system. So it's a matter of thinking, well, what are things that would dial up a threat response system? Well, we know a previous trauma does. So we know a previous trauma will kind of prime your body for this threat response. And a previous trauma that has contextual relevance to this part of your body seems to prime it even more. And that makes sense. So there are people who have had an experience of a back or pelvic issue before they got pregnant, right? So is it understandable that this area would be primed from a threat response? Absolutely. Why is it that we see more pregnancy-related pelvic girdle pain in the second pregnancy? Very rare in the first What's our big issue, you know, in a North American context? Unfortunately, it's birth trauma. How traumatized women are from sort of conventional routine practices, unfortunately. You know, so there's some really nice qualitative data now starting to kind of connect this literature around fear of birth and a previous trauma, you know, mapping it onto this upregulation response in the next pregnancy that someone might have not had the first time around. Well, what are other things that dial up your threat response system? Lack of sleep right we have so much data to show that what's another thing dysregulated cortisol right so when we kind of understand that for the science that it is and we're just connecting the dots and our clients understand we say look like in any context forget even just being pregnant but in any context these are things that will dial up your threat response system so then when you can kind of layer on specific contextual things about the pregnancy let's say the woman who reflects and says yeah actually her first birth she hasn't even really debriefed it much, but actually, yeah, now that she thinks about it, that that was not a good experience. And now to boot, she's got an 18 month old at home. She's exhausted. She's not getting the sleep she needs. You know, like, are we honestly surprised that that threat response is, well, no. And if we kind of keep digging around the periphery and thinking about this as a biomechanical problem, I mean, it's not surprising that that's never going to make it better, right? Whereas when we can shift and look at these other things that impact nociceptive processing, but also mapping it specifically onto our science of, of pelvic girdle pain, which is new, 
we can see that. So in um, the journal Musculoskeletal Science and Practice, this is actually quite um, a high impact journal. It's a very good quality journal. They had a whole issue just last year in 2020 dedicated to pelvic pain. And a few of the papers were specific to pelvic girdle pain. And what was really exciting was that these two different research groups, you know, one that was more kind of um, Europe-based, but had some researchers from the U.S., and the other from um, Darren Beals and Professor Peter O'Sullivan's group in Australia, both kind of came up, coming at it from different perspectives, but came up with the notion that pelvic girdle pain and pregnancy-related pelvic girdle pain, this is an issue to do with these central factors. And we have to connect the dots with the research and push past this. Interestingly, the European group was very much looking at it more kind of still from a bottom-up perspective. There's still their theory was around neuroinflammation and central information, and they talked specifically about sleep and stress management. Right, but still thinking of it that it sort of gets these repeated kind of micro sort of impacts from the peripheral tissue. But if that's happening within the context of not great sleep or stress or previous trauma, that's going to kind of balloon into this bigger situation. Whereas Professor O'Sullivan and Darren Beale's group kind of explained it a little bit more from a top-down perspective around the beliefs, but still highlighting hugely how important central factors were, beliefs around pain, and optimizing sort of movement patterns. So in ways, they're kind of coming to the same place. And yes, this is new. This is building on our uh, 2017 clinical practice guidelines, like really a sharp contrast to our 2008 guidelines. But I still feel like it isn't catching on, right? I, I still feel like when it comes to clinical practice, there are many more of us who are kind of up to date and up to date and getting incredible outcomes in our practice because it works so well and it's just so much simpler. But I mean, there's still that gap there, right? Yeah, I love hearing about like in terms of they're constantly researching. Like, I just think it's so helpful that they did do that update and they're constantly looking at it. And how you mentioned, like a lot of things that Sinead has talked about, a lot of this can be done virtually, mm-hmm. which like this past year has been a game changer. Like depending where you live in the world, um, a lot of physios have either done all virtual at a certain point or now mm-hmm. a combination. Um, but I found in my practice that it's like people get changes through virtual because of all the mm-hmm. things Sinead talked about. A lot mm-hmm. of it can be done through education, through tra- mm-hmm. like testing and retesting through Mm -hmm. video, explaining things to people, having them try them at home, which I just think has just added to it, which is so awesome to see. And I know some people are listening thinking like, can I really get better sleep when I'm pregnant? And the thing is, it is, there are so many different things around um, sleep, but also stress. And Mm -hmm. something I know we both talk about with clients is it's not that we're saying we're going to get rid of your stress because stress, there is always going to be a level of stress in our lives. And this past Mm -hmm. year with the pandemic, there's always been this underlying stress. Mm -hmm. Um, And we know pregnancy, birth, postpartum, there's been additional layers on top of what you you may experience outside of this time, but there are things we can do to help you manage or help you cope or find, find those strategies that work for you that may mm-hmm. seem small, but as Shanae talked about, like starting to take away a bit of that threat um, mm-hmm. when it comes to certain stresses or, you know, how can we manage in the moment? Because that can impact that central system, um, mm-hmm. which I think 
once clients start to experience these light bulb moments go off, which is so exciting to see. So mm -hmm. why don't we go into as well, um, when it comes to think how you mentioned trauma in the past, because I think mm -hmm. it's good to talk about that when someone's pregnant and they've experienced that, or maybe they haven't, but they've heard from others and the, the fears or concerns they might be thinking about their upcoming birth or about becoming um, a parent or mother for the first time or the second or third time that those fears or concerns can again create that underlying stress that may actually contribute to our pain experience so mm -hmm. can you chat a bit about you know yeah working through those and actually that that can change our pain experience absolutely so i often talk to about it kind of from the perspective of our physiology and the perspective of the mechanics because oftentimes people can kind of understand it that way especially if they really are thinking like the mechanical sort of tight locked painful feeling they're feeling here like they really are feeling like that is relevant and it is relevant it's just usually not relevant or mediated the way they think it is right so i'll talk about it in those two perspectives and i'll first highlight to say like look we know a couple of things about the function of the pelvic floor um, from decades of science, right? And one of the things that we know is when our threat response goes off, we are kind of in a scary situation that the pelvic floor, as well as the upper fibers of traps for that matter, are unique and distinct from every other muscle in our body, that they have a somatic function with our uh, threat response system. You're scared those tissues actually will automatically fire, right? And so we know that. So that's an important bit of muscle physiology that I think people need to understand. It's not like they're, they're trying to. It is happening. If that system is going off, it's happening. So if that system is actually just a bit hypervigilant from a previous experience, well, you likely are going to just have higher resting tone, you know, in one or both of those parts of your body, like depending on where you're at. And so that can come with it, actually, some local peripheral effects. You know, a muscle that's holding more tension, it doesn't oxygenate the tissue very well. You know, you don't get as good blood flow. You don't. So when we're thinking of really healthy, robust tissue that isn't going to sort of feel threatened, right? that is not the context of tissue that's like holding its breath and being strangled. Like you can appreciate now anything happening in that environment, probably like the threat response is going to go off more because there's just not as much resilience, right? So there are some definite effects there. And what we also know from research we've conducted, like myself and, and, and others, is that 100% of women in the populations we assessed, and this corroborates with other research, actually had a tenderness on palpation in their pelvic floor. So women who are pregnant with pregnancy-related pelvic girdle pain, that group 100% had tenderness on palpation when we touched the pelvic floor, right? And so what else do we know about tenderness on palpation of the pelvic floor? Well, that actually correlates with something called central sensitization. That was other research we did that validated this. And so, you know, again, those are speaking to kind of more of those central upregulating factors, but there's some peripheral things going on. I think that's important for people to understand, but then understanding, you know, if it's the threat response system itself that is in this hypervigilant state that is kind of part of this, 
Well, we need to send your stress response system a signal of safety. Like we have to do things to get it out of that state. And if some of the things that have it in this state are things that happened in your previous birth that haven't been debriefed very well, and really you don't have a sense of safety in your body, well, those need to be dealt with, or this system's going to stay really, really programmed. You know, if an issue is around the sleep piece that you kind of mentioned before, many, many people assume that it's because of the pain in their pelvis and that's why they can't sleep. And actually we have data to show that it goes both ways. And if anything, it probably goes more, your sleep dis- dis- systems dysregulated. And that's why you don't have, you have more hypervigilance at the time you should be sleeping than should. And that's why you're aware you can't fall asleep. So we find still getting people into doing very, very basic things to support their circadian rhythm, make sure they go out for a walk first thing in the morning so they can kind of get that sunlight to reprogram their cortisol melatonin sort of ratios, making sure that they're understanding that when their threat response system is up, that is so taxing right on their body. So it means their energy system is going to get wiped out a lot quicker. So it means that they're probably going to have an energy crash at three o'clock, right? So certainly these are the people who will notice, yeah, like if I attempt to go for a walk, like at that time of day, forget it, but they'll find, well, you're right. When I go first thing in the morning and my cortisol is high and I've just, yeah, it's a very different experience. So, you know, I'll suggest three o'clock might be a really good time just for a 10 minute reboot, you know, legs up the wall, you know, this is an opportunity to do something mindfulness related. We have so much data on mindfulness when it's done regularly that it literally reprograms your brain. It is one of the most powerful things to send your body a signal of safety, you know? So again, we have good data for mindfulness in terms of better birth, mindfulness, like the list goes on and on and on. So those are some pieces that I think when people understand how the biological systems work and they understand the physiology of it, it it makes more sense to them. I mean, I've been sort of... um, sort of accused in like a really kind of frustrating way about my commenting that beliefs are more important than biomechanics when it comes to pregnancy related pelvic girdle pain. And really when, you know, people have reached out to me and have been kind of offended or frustrated with that, it's because the assumption is they think I'm kind of saying it's in their head and there's nothing real about it. But that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying us focusing on some of the cognitive aspects can rewire your biology and your motor patterns so much more powerfully than trying to just focus on the peripheral inputs, you know, to modulate the nociceptive processing. So once people really understand what I mean, they think, ah, okay. But, you know, saying it kind of in a sentence like that can be sort of misleading, right? But it really does kind of come down to it when clients can understand yes, this is real in their physiology. And they understand how all the different physiological systems connect, but also how those feed in to the pelvic tissues. I mean, I'll often say, you know, if you picture a plant with leaves, and if we picture this kind of really sore, irritable sacroiliac joint as one of the leaves, and it's kind of gone a bit brown, and it's kind of got a crack in it, You know, sure, if we kind of sprayed water right on that leaf and maybe made sure some sunlight got to it, would that maybe perk it up a little bit? Sure, 
maybe a little bit, but it's not going to be the most constructive thing. The most constructive thing is going to be getting into the soil, getting it water and really good nutrients, and maybe getting the whole plant in fresh air. So the soil, like, and then you're feeding it, and then you're going to see a dramatic change. That's sort of what we're going for with this, right? So I think once people can kind of get the biological systems, and you're quite right, when we're on virtual care, it, we can't default to some of our old ways of doing things because we can't. We're there talking to them. So we have to learn and get really good at organizing our care to really spend more time explaining these things well that we might have glossed over in five minutes because we're kind of getting to the good stuff, right? And I think, yeah, it has been probably humbling for many of our colleagues to recognize, oh my goodness, see, I thought that what was really moving the needle or those other things. But now I'm learning, that's not to say that those weren't irrelevant, totally irrelevant, but that's not really where the magic happens. The magic was happening actually in these other pieces that probably I should have spent more time on, right? So I think that's kind of where we're at with it. Yeah, I love I love that tree analogy. I'm definitely gonna use that because I think it's such a great way to get across exactly, rather than hone in on one specific spot, it really is looking at the whole picture. I love that. And I think it's going to come across for a lot of people who are listening. And I think when people start to learn that, then when we try things in terms of movement, it makes Mm -hmm. more sense of why things feel different. Like I love, there was one of your, I think it was one of your Instagram lives or videos. And you even just demonstrated that idea of um, how I mentioned off the top, one of the common symptoms is walking that cause pain, but then sometimes having a client walk backwards, which technically You were loading the tissues, you were doing very similar movement, but someone then may not experience the pain. Mm -hmm. And that's one of those times where kind of that light bulb can go off for Mm -hmm. our clients being like, well, this technically is the same movement, but my pain experience is completely different. Okay, let's keep diving into this kind of thing. Or even turning turning in bed. Um, mm-hmm. I love seeing this come out more and more. I do a lot of videos on this. And I know Sinead talks about this is mm-hmm. this idea of opening the knees. And in general, mm-hmm. a lot of um, exercises we do with our clients with pelvic girdle pain do involve opening the knees, which is mm-hmm. often traditionally something people are told, don't do, keep your legs together at all costs, do not do asymmetrical movements. But when we have clients, and again, we start going through these myths and we have them experimenting with some movements, they actually realize, okay, this actually isn't threatening for my body. This is not going to cause me um, an injury, especially if someone experiences pubic symphysis pain, opening Mm -hmm. the knees can initially maybe not feel safe because of what they've been told. Having them gradually start to do it at a pace that feels safe to them Mm -hmm. can drastically change their pain even within one of our sessions or even if Mm -hmm. maybe if they come across a video of ours online um, can already start to change it and when you think about labor Mm -hmm. and this idea of don't open your knees I feel we aren't setting our clients up for success when it comes to labor if we say Mm -hmm. don't open your knees however in this one event at the very end yes, you're going to need to open your knees to give birth. And Mm -hmm. so I think it's just unraveling some of those movement myths and getting people to, you know, test things out for themselves and see what their experience is that can make drastic changes and also prepare them for birth. 
do you find mm-hmm. you see, I know you talk about online all the time. So I know you see those light bulb moments with your clients. Yes. And that, and that, that is true. And, and that has been something that, um, it's been a transition to try to recreate that virtually, but you still kind of can, like, you still can say, okay, I just want to like watch how you, how you do something. And they don't really know my rationale of like why I'm having them walk back the words. They might think I'm going to be like biomechanically looking at their gate or something, but again, it is those movements who you're right. So they can experience it because you or I could cite off the research and, you know, the graded clinical practice guidelines until the cows come home. But at the end of the day, I mean, people are going to more likely believe their lived experience, right? Even as a clinician, because I mean, I'm of course a researcher too. I trust more of what I see in my practice than what, you know, I see in a research paper. So when things are aligning, you know, that's when it's really, really good when the data is kind of showing what I see in clinic. And so I think it's critical that people are sort of getting it on that cognitive level. They're sort of saying, okay, I kind of have the conviction. I'm buying into what you're saying, but they need to have then the confidence to try it. And then when they see themselves, oh my goodness. Yeah. Like I just kind of went with it, sort of did, had enough confidence to kind of do what she suggested. And I can't believe that that didn't hurt. Like I can't believe it. And oftentimes they won't believe it. And of course, we can be sitting there with so much conviction saying, like, we fully anticipated it would happen this way because we get the benefit of seeing this all the time, right? But for them, they experience it and then they're sold, right? Like, you do sometimes need people to kind of buy in initially if you're offering something very different. And the shift in thinking and language and discourse around pregnancy-related pelvic girdle pain it's, it's different, right? So um, I do think there is a degree of that, that we have to get savvy to have ways of people experiencing that. So as you said, right at the beginning, Anita, and quite rightfully so, I mean, for people to co- who will come in and they, w- they will have notions about, yeah, well, I think I'm getting this pain in my second pregnancy because I was in worse shape going into this. I think my core was weak. I had XYZ problem after I birthed my first baby that I, I never really got a strong core after that. So I think this is because my core is weak. There's a lot of that, right? And actually there's a whole bunch of other reasons why it's more likely that they have this this time around, but they're focused in the biomechanical story. They're focused in the story of the weak tissues, right? Cause that's, that's sort of the discourse that's around. But when you can, as you say, have them at the beginning of the visit, struggling to do an active straight leg raise. And of course we can do this virtually too. It's one of the tests I use all the time at the beginning, but then we've kind of, you know, had some, you know, pain neuroscience kind of coaching with them. We've had a chance to kind of go through some kind of some counseling and say, yeah, what if it was less about the fact that you're teaching online right now through the pandemic and you seem to think your pain has to do because you're sitting all the time. But do you think the way that you're enacting your job as a teacher right now is sort of easier and, and less stressful than it was before? Or do you feel like there's more angst and stress and pressure on you in their job? And they'll think, oh my goodness, no, it's so much more stressful. And we say, well, what if that actually was modulating way more than just the mechanics of sitting? Because that's actually what the data shows, right? And so you kind of do all that bit, just getting them to think, huh, you know, that kind of actually makes a bit of sense they move around, they do their active like straight leg raise again, it's so much easier. And you say exactly that. I didn't just eliminate 
the last six months that you've been sitting. I didn't just make your, your core stronger in the last 15 minutes. But what we did do was we put some very different inputs into your nervous system and all the things that predictably modulate nociceptive processing at that peripheral level. That's what we just did. And you just got to see the benefits of it. So that is what we will do. And you have full control over that. Right. And so, yeah, that that is kind of really where it shakes out. And is there additional benefit when we see these folks in person and we can get our hands on their pelvic floors? Yes, because we can have a much quicker way of sending a signal of safety to that pelvic floor when the person is in the context of a safe environment and they get that actual tactile feedback onto the floor that the brain can say, oh, there I didn't even realize Oh, and we can say, you tell your brain to send that tissue a signal of safety, like let it go, right? That can happen, I believe, much more effectively if we can see someone once, but there are all these other things that we can do, right? That are just so, so critical. So I love that you're going to be getting this info out, Anita, because everyone needs to hear it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, I love that you bring that. And you'll probably, if you're, you know, with listening to this, you're probably hearing a common thread that we're talking about is um, around, we haven't talked too much about strengthening per se. And I wouldn't say we feel like strengthening is a negative thing. Strengthening has so many benefits during pregnancy, mm-hmm. but you'll hear us talk about again, again, it's, it can be about letting go of tension mm-hmm. and the breath can play such important role to that. Mm-hmm. We've talked about in so many episodes. Um, but I know Sinead, you talk about too, like the breath and the pelvic floor, but just in general, getting into that parasympathetic nervous system, mm-hmm. breathe, deep breathing is just so, so helpful. So oftentimes kind of more focusing on releasing tension Mm -hmm. may be more beneficial for um, pelvic girdle pain and also allow you to continue strengthening too. Mm Because I find people are often told avoid lunges, avoid any asymmetrical movement. Um, And when I have clients, especially ones who are quite active and want to continue with their activities or their sports, and they're like, Mm -hmm. so is this like game over until like after I have my baby or like, these are really meaningful activities to me, which can then play into all the other aspects that we've been talking about. And so to know that it may be about finding, you know, strategies to do movements a bit differently, using your breath a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. There's all these different strategies we can use to help you then still do all those movements that maybe initially were painful because that's I think I find something I see on social quite a bit is like all these things to avoid whereas Mm -hmm. I love that you talk about Shane it's not about avoiding things could we find another way to do them Mm -hmm. and get a different input to our system so then you can actually get back to doing it versus just this is off the table Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I agree 100%. And the other thing I would say about this, and this is sometimes, again, one of the ways I'll engage with people just to help them to maybe look at something from another perspective. But when they say, we'll say that exactly, but the lunges and the this, I will just come back and say, yes, that is very common thinking and discourse. But think about it. Prenatal yoga has been around for decades. What does that primarily found around? lunges and warrior and, you know, and actually, you know, one of our strongest meta-analysis trials for movement and exercise that was published in 2014, was like the form of exercise specifically for pregnancy-related pelvic girdle pain that actually showed to be the best. Well, why is that? Well, we think 
Yeah, because people actually are not afraid to move. They're using their breath. They're, you know, all of the things that we've said. So I agree if for whatever reason, in terms of nociceptive processing, your body is experiencing sort of a threat response every time you do lunges. Yes, until we can rewire that with a different strategy or different beliefs. Or, no, I wouldn't keep irritating your body. Like it, it, there's something about that, that your body isn't feeling safe doing, you know, but I would certainly be wanting to get curious about it because I'd be saying, huh, I wonder what it is about that movement that, you know, my body isn't liking, like, you know, is it because maybe I'm, I'm holding too much tension in that one area? Is it because, you know, get a little bit curious about it. And, you know, that's where, you know, working with an awesome fitness provider, yoga instructor or PT or whoever can really, really help to be like, hi, I wonder about that. Cause you're quite right. At the end of the day, we want women fit and healthy, like in their pregnancies, like doing what they want to do. We want them to be able to walk pain-free. We want them to be able to participate in their fitness classes. We want, and really, I would argue they should be like, we really know enough now that at least for the vast, vast, vast majority, we should be able to help them figure out, you know, what is happening and, and ramping up this threat response system. And we should help them figure out how they can turn the volume down and kind of get back at it. So I really see that as our job for sure. But yes, the, the messaging certainly isn't, oh, just kind of avoid things. And you can only do these kind of like symmetry types of movement sequences and that's it. No, you know, that's all, as you said, to wind down the system, to reinstill sort of better patterns and strategies. And once you have those, then you should be able to do more. Right. Yeah, I feel like we could talk about this forever. Um, but I know today's episode definitely, if you're listening and you're experiencing PGP or you have, I know uh, a lot of this information hopefully will be helpful. Some of it may definitely be new. Um, but I do want, Sinead, for you to kind of share a bit about your course for, for professionals, because I feel like whenever I have um, pros message me. I'm always being like, go do Sinead's course, go do Sinead's course. So can you share a bit about it and kind of how people can, can register or find out more? Yes, absolutely. No, thanks for that, Anita. So yeah, so I have um, a pregnancy-related pelvic girdle pain course that I created. And actually, um, Alexandra Frankholm, she is a um, PT from Jersey in the UK. She actually teaches a little segment of, of the course. She's actually on pace to start her uh, PhD with uh, Darren Beals group in um, Australia. So she has a, and she teaches actually for the UK uh, division of uh, pelvic PTs as well. So that's always kind of nice when you have two people that are really able to kind of bounce ideas off each other. I think it really eliminates um, bias in a course. Um, so she does teach a segment of this, but it's a course that runs over two days. So it runs over two Fridays. It's four hours one week, and then the next week it's four hours again. It very much is geared really for all healthcare providers. So yes, obviously there are going to be things that are going to be more physiotherapy centric, right? For sure. But given that I actually teach in the school of medicine, I teach nurse practitioners, I teach midwives. I interact so closely with even engaging in kind of training with our doulas at the womb. I am very used to kind of teaching from the perspective kind of of like frontline care. So I have found that like yoga instructors, Pilates instructors, doulas, midwives, physicians, 
everyone has really found the course was like a good fit for them. And of course, PTs. Um, it is run through a company called Reframe Rehab. So it is live online. Um, but their policy is that, you know, if you can't attend live or it's just your choice to attend kind of at a different time of day, you have access to a recorded link for a few days, you know, after the course runs, right? Um, at Reframe Rehab also, we run office hours once a month. So if for whatever reason, you didn't have a chance to kind of ask questions in the course, or now when reflecting on all the content, you've had a couple of cases pop up and you thought, oh man, I'd love to go back and just ask Sinead about these. There's an opportunity to do that every month for anyone who's taken a course. So if you go to um, reframerehab.ca and also they have, they're on Instagram as well, and you can just go into their bio and, and register. My next course I think is in June. And then my next course after that is in September. So that's the best way to access that course. I go through all kind of a deep dive of the literature so you can really understand historically where we were and why we thought what we did and why did we even start doing what we did in the first place because we did it with good reason at the time right and really taking you through all the literature because it's very hard to try to curate literature as a very busy clinician and it also is quite a skill to be able to analyze uh, literature and triangulate it well right and so that is kind of really what you know, I feel like is a strength of mine. And that really is what I try to bring to the course. It isn't really meant to be a practically oriented course where I'm going to have people like spending lots of time moving and doing different exercises. Do I have video clippets of different techniques? Yes. But mostly it is more of a knowledge translation, really getting all the evidence kind of curated, the kind of key takeaway messages, and then case study application as well. Mm -hmm. Love it. So yeah, we'll make sure all those links are in the show notes. And then also how can people connect to you Sinead online? Where are the best places people can find you? So the best places are probably either through the womb, right through the womb's main page, I have my own kind of director page, you can also connect with me on my experts at McMaster page, which has all my publications. Um, if you're more interested in the research side of things. But then you can also connect with me through Instagram, as Anita mentioned, I'm very, very new just in the fall, um, kind of jumped onto Instagram, but finding it a really nice platform to, again, translate research. So it is very much a professional account. It's not a personal account. Um, so that's another place that it's uh, good to kind of connect with me because I'll let you know about courses I'm doing or this or that or, you know, new evidence. And hopefully, as Anita said, trying to make it as like digestible and kind of meaningfully relevant, um, you know, to uh, end users as possible. Awesome. Well, I know people will be messaging you and checking you out in all those different spots. So we'll make sure all those links are on um, in the show notes. So thank you so much, Sinead, for being on and sharing your expertise and your knowledge. I know this is going to be a very popular episode because this is such a common topic we get asked about. So thank you so much. Okay. Thank you for inviting me, Anita, and for all the work you do in women's health. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the To Birth and Beyond podcast. You can find any links or resources we discussed in the show notes at tobirthandbeyond.com. And if you enjoyed today's show, we would love for you to leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe to the To Birth and Beyond podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. 